you. I want to welcome you this morning. For those of you who are here as our guests, we're just especially honored that you'd be with us. We gather as a people, not because we are perfect or have arrived by any means. I am so aware, freshly aware of my need for God's grace. We, we gather here because we're Christ. We gather here to worship him and thank him. We gather here as a foretaste of all that we'll experience forever and ever. We gather here as God's people to be reminded of who he is, of our need for a Savior and his amazing provision. This morning we're going to be looking at a text of Scripture that 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 is is really Jesus sitting down with his disciples. So imagine this. Jesus, we have the the privilege, the the this record of Jesus sitting with his disciples and instructing them about how they're to live as disciples. And and we get to listen in on that. That's what we're looking at this morning. Mark's record of this meeting of Jesus' holy words that were for his 12 and for us. Jesus had you in mind when he said these things. Look with me. Mark chapter 9, beginning of verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, they asked him, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if he had a great millstone or hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Mark's gospel asks and answers two questions. As we've been making our way through the gospel of Mark, we've seen at the end of the second chapter, I'm sorry, the eighth chapter, that Peter declares in somewhat of a climax for this first question, you are the Christ. And then the second question, what does it mean to follow him, begins to be answered at that point and continues through chapters 9 and 10. So we're midway through this great discipleship discourse where Jesus tells us what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be like him. Essentially, he tells us that that the gospel makes us salty. To, To follow Christ is to be like him, to be distinct. And this morning, we're going to be listening in on what Christ said to his disciples as he's equipping them. He's sitting as in a house in, in this day, rabbis, teachers would sit down as they taught. He's sitting in this house alone with his disciples. He doesn't want anyone else to know he's there because his ministry to the multitudes is essentially ended. And now Jesus is preparing to go to Jerusalem. He's preparing for his crucifixion and he's preparing his disciples to lead the church. He's, is, he is really equipping these men for the church and for the future of the mission. And as we're overhearing his personal training, we can't help but be aware that he's speaking through the passages of Scripture to us as well. This interaction we're looking at today has the potential of radically changing the way we live. So I want you to engage your faith. This isn't just a historic document of a teaching opportunity with the disciples. This is Jesus speaking to us. It rocked their world, and it can rock our world as well. It can and should have an immediate effect upon our lives. Speaking to how we live and why we live the way we do. So three, three lessons, three parts. We're going to break this into. Jesus speaks to three things, all under the banner of the path of discipleship. He says, he speaks first of all, along this path, he says, suffering leads to glory. Serving leads to greatness and holiness leads to hope or to certainty. The first thing he does is to describe his imminent suffering. He's describing what's going to happen to him, that he will suffer, that he will die, that he will be resurrected. This is the second time. He shared this information with them. Second discourse where Jesus tells them. He wants them to be aware 
that he will die and that that death is not only predicted, but the very will of God. He doesn't want them to be shaken. And he wants them to have a confidence in the message of the gospel. That Jesus would die upon the cross as the substitute for our sin. When we sin, when we wrong, when we sin against God, that, that has to be paid for. And the only man who could ever die on our behalf is the only man who's ever walked a sinless life, and that is Christ. He wants them to be aware that this is in God's plan, that this is for God's glory, that, that will, this will end up in being glory. It is actually what it means to be the Messiah. He wants them to understand this because they must follow in his footsteps. And the disciples don't get it. And they're afraid to ask, in part because Jesus rebuked Peter last time he asked, when Peter told him, no, Lord, you can't do that. In part because they're not really wanting to go there. The disciples are still wanting to think of their Savior, their Master being the Messiah as leading them into greatness. And Jesus is about to redefine what greatness is all about. So first of all, we've seen suffering leads to glory. Secondly, serving leads to greatness. There, as Jesus is sitting talking to these men, he, he does something very insightful. He, he asks them a question. What were you talking about along the way? Now, a good insight for us, when Jesus asks questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. He knows. He wants us to be honest. He wants us to tell the truth and to be aware. And they, of course, were arguing about who is to be the greatest. Now, no doubt that was encouraged by Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up the Mount of Transfiguration. So these two, three men have been set apart, and no doubt they think of themselves as, well, a little bit better than the other guys. I, hey, we've got something to tell you. It was the most amazing thing, but we really can't talk about it. So it's just us and Jesus, you know. And So there's this competition, apostolic trash talk. Who's the apostolic MVP? Arguing about status and honor and power. And so Jesus talks to them about their heart, about their attitude. And, he, and here's what he says in verse 35. If anyone would be first. Now stop and think about it. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to want to be first. He's not saying that seeking greatness is bad. In fact, I think we're going to see Jesus is actually encouraging them to seek greatness. And let's be honest, that, that is a big thing in our culture as well, isn't it? The, the whole idea of keys to success. I mean, there, is, there are so many seminars and books and CDs about, about keys to success. I, I googled that last night just to see how, how popular it really is. I just typed in keys to success and, and came, came up with 126 million links. There's a lot of people seeking success. And, and mark this well, there are a lot of different ideas about how to do that. But few ideas 
In fact, I could say, I think we could say very few of those 126 million links would have given the same answer Jesus gave. Jesus is about to redefine success. He's not saying success is wrong. He's saying seek success, seek greatness, but, but he's about to redefine how that happens in a way that rocked their lives and rightly understood should rock our lives as well. Look what he says. Verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Could you say that again, Lori? I don't think I heard you correctly. I thought you said last of all and servant of all. That's right. Now, the the word servant there is not the idea of a slave. It's not the idea of one who is indentured, who has to serve. It's the idea, the Greek word doulos, that has to do with voluntary service. That has to do with living, serving. I'm sorry, it's diakonos. That has to do with a free devotion to serve. It's, it's, It's the idea of choosing to come to a low position. Jesus modeled it in just a few weeks from here, this place. Jesus modeled it the night before his crucifixion when he took a bowl of water and he washed the disciples' feet. He modeled what it was to serve and he said, as I've served you, you serve. We learn about serving from the Savior who Paul wrote to the Philippians, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Suffering leads to glory. And Jesus suffered for us. James Edwards writes, At no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than the question of greatness. This dramatically changes our lives, rightly understood, from seeking to be noticed to seeking to serve, from seeking the position of first to seeking the position of last, from looking out for ourselves to primarily looking out for others. One man says the gospel frees us from our addiction to ourselves. That's right, isn't it? In every decision of life, who we talk to and who we, what we talk about, who we notice, who we pay attention to, who we go out of our way to serve, every decision we make, reveals something of our understanding of greatness, of servanthood. And to illustrate that, Jesus takes a child and he places the child in his arms. Now, to understand this, we need to understand that this isn't a child-centered culture. In this culture, children weren't considered wonderful and cute and just the, the most wonderful thing to snuggle with. Children were considered 
unimportant, insignificant. Older people were honored. Children were not honored. And so when Jesus takes a child in his arms and he says, whoever receives one such child, verse 37, in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. He's saying, I want you to receive, to honor, to care for, to love that this type of person, an insignificant person, an unimportant person, the way you love me. I want you to receive someone that the world doesn't consider to be significant. Someone the world looks down on. And think of Jesus' own example. He went out of his way to heal the cripple, the beggar, to touch and bless and heal a leprous person who is considered untouchable. He went through Samaria to meet a woman at the well who was adulterous, who was a Samaritan, who was despised. Jesus sought out the lowly. And the question is, how, how do we... How do we relate to the lowly, to the unimportant, to the people that the world looks down on? That should mark a disciple. I read an account of a a man named Jeremiah Stepek who was hired by a 10,000-member church and decided that for his first day he would dress up like a homeless person. He arrived a half an hour early to the service and he walked around greeting people as a homeless person. There he is. And people looked down at him. They shook their heads. They turned the other way. Only three people took the time to greet him. He asked for change to buy food No one gave him change. No one even offered to help him. He sat down in the front row. The ushers asked him, please move to the back. When it came time to introduce the new pastor, well, this man walked to the front. And he read from the Gospel of Matthew. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then all the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? And the king will reply, truly, I say to you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he looked at the church and he said, today I see a gathering of people, not a church, of Jesus Christ. The world has enough people 
but not enough disciples. Will you decide to become disciples? That's a sobering recounting, isn't it? The question that we need to consider is what's in our hearts. Who are the lowly in your world? When you see somebody sitting alone, hurting, do you move toward them or away? Which are you more aware of, getting your way or making others successful? What entertains you and pleases you or what blesses and helps others? How others fall short of your expectations or how you fall short? Those are the questions that this presses in upon us because Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least, you did it to me. Jesus helps them to see that serving leads to greatness. There are other illustrations. He, he, he talks about how we, how we conduct ourselves to people outside our church, outside our ranks. John in chapter verse 38 probably pricked in his conscience by what Jesus has just said, says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. John had in mind that this guy shouldn't be praying in Jesus' name. He, he, he's not among us. This was obviously someone who had heard the Master and given his heart to him and yet had not established a close relationship with the Twelve. Yet he was casting out demons, something that the nine had not been able to do in the passage just before. And it takes some gall for John to say he shouldn't be doing that when the disciples themselves were having a hard time doing that. Not to mention that John didn't say, Jesus, he's not following you. He said he's not following us. There's an elitism. John's putting himself in this camp. We're special. We're the privileged few. We, we're the ones that have the glory. Everybody else should be like us. And you know, that's something that we're all prone to do. If we feel like we have something special, we're, we're prone to compare other people to us unfavorably. It's kind of like Joshua coming to Moses in Numbers 11. Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. My Lord Moses, make them stop. And Moses says, are you jealous for my namesake? Would be that all of Jehovah's peoples were prophets. Moses had an open heart to all people. Jesus Jesus has an open heart to all people. Look at verse 39. Do not stop him, for no one does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterwards to be able to speak evil of me. Somewhat of a humorous response. The one who's not against us is for us. Jesus is saying, guys, our job, your job, is not to go around critiquing, to go around condemning, to be exclusive. My kingdom is for all those who call upon the name of the Lord. And it helps us to see that our primary focus should be 
on how God is using others with a happy heart. doesn't mean there's never a time to critique, to point out, especially if there's an issue of doctrine, but, but, but our life shouldn't be defined by having a critical attitude toward other people. When you hear about God blessing another church, I hope you're happy. I have the joy of meeting regularly, not only with other pastors in our part of Sovereign Grace in our region, but, but also with a group of pastors here under the banner of Together for the Gospel. We just hosted a lunch a few weeks back. And, and, and I love to be able to say to these other guys, I'm praying for you. We as a church are praying for you. We, we want the best for you. We're rejoicing with you. I got together recently with Brandon Samuel, who leads Commonwealth Chapel, and just just rejoice with him and God providing a new building for them, the journey building down on Old Hundred Road, and 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 being happy, genuinely happy, wanting wanting these people to be blessed because they're fellow laborers in the gospel. Now I'm sure they do some things differently than we do, but that's not really my focus. If people are calling on the name of the Lord, if other churches are proclaiming the gospel and God is using them in even greater ways than he's using us, we should be happy. We should rejoice because because it's about Jesus, not about us. And when you meet somebody from another church, I met someone a couple of weeks ago that came from another church in the area that we respect and I just took some time to celebrate with them. I I wasn't telling them about all the things God was doing at Kingsway. I talked to them about how God was using their church and how thankful I was that they could be in that church and how I hope that they just threw their lives into that church and, and honored God there. How glad we are for God's work among them. Now, I want you to know that's sincere. And I pray that that would be something that would reflect our lives in in every opportunity, that we celebrate the work of the gospel wherever it is. That That our hearts, while not being unaware of issues of doctrine, practice that could be concerned, that we major on evidences of grace and having, like Jesus, a welcoming openness toward fellow followers of the gospel. And then he gives us two other illustrations, two other ways that we that we serve others. He, he's saying that to be distinct, to be salty, is, is to be a people who have a heart to serve and demonstrate that in the way that they conduct themselves toward the little ones, toward other believers. So verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, Because you belong to Christ, he says, you'll by no means lose your reward. When we do a kindness to another Christian, Jesus wants us to know that we are doing that to him. Now, if you're a parent, you're going to be able to understand this. If somebody does a kindness to your child, it's better than if they do a kindness to you. Do you know what I'm saying? If someone does a kindness to to one of our children, blesses them, cares for them, encourages them, reaches out to them, that means more to me than if they would have done that to me. And this is what 
Jesus is saying here, that when you do a kindness to another believer, you're doing a kindness to him. And it doesn't have to be a great big thing. He says, giving a cup of water. Small, insignificant acts of service and hospitality to another believer are immediately transformed into something significant. Jesus notices when Katie Bishop has a baby and people take meals. Katie, uh, Jesus notices when, when someone is sick and you go over and pray for them. Jesus notices when you babysit for a couple so that they can get a much-needed night out. Jesus notices little things that, well, left to themselves, seem insignificant. But to Jesus, they are. They're acts of service. And he doesn't distinguish here between great things and small things. But he looks at the heart. But he also does, has a very deep concern with causing another to stumble. So verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. So just, just as Jesus notices the kindness that we do for one another, if we cause one another to stumble by the way we act, by our lack of love, by our lack of care, or by, by our active opposition. If we criticize and oppose another believer, it is as if we are criticizing and opposing God himself. It is a very serious matter. And he said it would be just like the Roman practice of getting a millstone, these great big stones that are, that are pulled by a donkey to crush grain, that that would be tied around the neck. The Romans actually did this when they wanted to kill some insurrection leaders. They tied millstones around their neck and threw them into the sea. That would be the appropriate punishment. That's how, that's how awful that is to God. And so, so serving leads to greatness. Serving one another in great ways and small ways. Having an attitude of a servant. But then, thirdly, he says, be distinct in the path of discipleship by pursuing holiness. Because holiness leads to hope. And he says that in a, in a way that to us seems kind of unusual. He says in verse 30, 43, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. 40, 45, if your foot caused you to sin, cut it off. 47, if your eye caused you to sin, tear it out. The Jews personalize sin. They, they personalize the responsibility for sin to the part of the body that committed the sin. And so if someone stole, they, they say, your hand stole. Your hand was guilty. Your hand sinned. And so Jesus is saying, if that's the case, then cut it off. If your hands cause you to steal, cut it off. If your feet take you to evil, cut them off. He's not calling us to self-mutilation. But he's calling us to flee sin. 
It's a command to deal drastically with sin because sin is to the inner person what a cancerous tumor is to the body. Whatever tempts a person must properly and decisively be renounced even as a surgeon amputates a, a, a limb to save a life. So he's saying sin is your enemy. Sin seeks to destroy you. And let's be clear, he's not saying flee sin in order to be saved. He's saying flee sin because you're saved. To avoid the fires of hell. And he lays before them the very real possibility of hell in verse 43 calling it the unquenchable fire in verse 48 saying the worm does not die the fire is not quenched brothers and sisters hell is a very real place and if as you're listening today you're aware that you have never turned from your sin and trusted in the savior apart from that happening, you are on your way to hell. That is your certain destination. That, that's what this makes absolutely clear. Hell is a very real place of eternal torment. It's held out for us as the most sobering recognition, the most sobering warning that we must turn. But the truth is for Christians... Well, no matter how many years you follow the Lord, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is our enemy. I'm aware in my own life, just this past week, of different situations where sin has sought to entrap me. And we need God's help. We need God's help. We need, to, we need to hate sin because it seeks to destroy us. We need to hate sin because, because it, it dishonors the Savior. This is a call to hold tightly to grace, to run into the Savior's arms, and to recognize that no matter how many years you followed the Lord, we are all essentially at our core broken people in need of a Savior. But it also contains within it a promise of hope. This is, this is the path to discipleship, folks. It's the path of suffering, it's the path of serving, and it's the path of pursuing holiness. And Jesus adds to that in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. There is a reality that for each person, fire will come. That the idea of salt here is, is from the temple. Salt was, was given to be poured onto the flames as an act of worship to God. Salt acts in a believer's life to preserve and to refine us. It's part of our life. It's part of the path of discipleship. Suffering marks the path of discipleship. Remember where we started. Suffering leads to glory. And if we're to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. 
So this is a picture of how we're to work. It takes us full circle in this text. We must understand that fire will, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, test the quality of each man's work. It will purify us and it will, it will perfectly refine us on that final day. But it also is present for an unbeliever. Unbelievers all, not only have fire and, and judgment in this present life, but eternal fire. So for those who don't know the Lord, who aren't following the Lord, this idea of being salted with fire is one that is hopeless. But for believers, it simply functions to remind us as Matthew said earlier, that we're not home yet. And one day we will be. And then he concludes in verse 50 with, with salt in a different way. He's using salt here in a different understanding. He says salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Salt was used as a condiment, as a preservative, It was common in the ancient world, but it also had impurities. So salt in that day would lose its flavor. And he's saying that a believer's life is marked by the salt, that we should be distinct, that we should be salty. All of these aspects of the path to discipleship, suffering and serving and pursuing wholeness are all with a view toward making us a distinct people, a salty people, a people that are different than the world around us. And he's saying if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be salty again? In other words, our lives aren't simply marked by conversion, and now I'm a Christian, and it doesn't matter what I do, but our lives must be in continual pursuit of the Lord. Our walk, continually pursuing Him to be distinct, to be different, to be set apart. Because suffering leads us to glory. And so when God works in us, and even when He brings us into seasons of difficulty, we must see in those seasons the loving hand of the Father. And this isn't just an individual thing, but actually In a primary way, this idea of saltiness, this idea of distinctiveness, is what marks God's people. So important. It's not just an individual pursuit, but our corporate pursuit. That we're a people set apart for him. That we're a people that when when someone walks in here and they look really bad, that we're pursuing them. Because we see in them an image bearer of God. We're a people that, that, that care for one another and look out for one another and serve one another. And we're a people helping one another to pursue holiness. We need each other. We need pr- each other's prayers and encouragement and exhortations. We need one another. God's called us to be a people that are distinct. Following Jesus radically changes our life as an individual and as a people. And then he ends with this little phrase, be at peace with each other. Remember where we started? The disciples are arguing. The disciples are debating who's the greatest. Well, Jesus is saying to them, 
if you do what I just said, if you're a servant to one another, you're going to be outdoing each other in being last. There'll be no room to argue except to say you're the greatest. No, no, you are. No, no, you are. Be at peace with each other. Love each other. Be kind to each other. Remember that when you do a kindness to another believer, you're doing a kindness to God. That when you receive a little one, that you're receiving the Lord. The path of discipleship, church, is rooted in the gospel. And I want to remind you of the message that we began with this morning. That it's because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's because he died for our sin that we can do these things. We don't do these things to be saved. We do these things because God has saved us. And that's what we're going to celebrate as we conclude today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That, that's a reminder of something that each of us has in common. We do this together, by the way, because it's a corporate testimony. We're saying together what defines us, you and me, is not our race or our background or our age. What defines us is that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I would love the opportunity to pray with you after this meeting. We, you are so welcome in this place. But please don't participate in communion. Communion is something particularly for believers. And to participate would be to drink judgment to yourself. But, but please watch, observe, and see what God is doing. This is a picture of God's people. If you're a Christian and you, you have issues that are not resolved with other believers, please, please participate by observing. This is a testimony that Christ's body is whole because of what he's accomplished on the cross. So in just